Okay, you should have a sermon guide uh, in your hands and uh, be helpful if you want to use that to uh, help you follow along. So how do we become uh, courageous in our disciple making? Uh, that's the broad application of the, this passage to our lives, although Paul is writing specifically to someone in pastoral ministry to apply these truths to Timothy's life in particular. And so a necessary and primary application would be, how does this help elders and pastors? There is that broader application for us that helps us figure out how. How do we, who are sometimes tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and of those who stand up for the truth about Jesus... How do we be courageous in what God has called us to be and do in disciple making? And uh, there are four main things, and uh, these four make up the outline in our sermon guide and in our talk just now, so let's get cracking. Uh, the first thing that you can do is you can look to God for power to press on. That's how we build courage in disciple making. By understanding, first of all, from verse 1 of chapter 2, that the strength to do what God calls us to do isn't in us, it's in him, God himself. And what an encouragement that is for us. I mean, how often do we lack the courage to do disciple-making work because we doubt our own abilities? Do you ever, do you ever find that? Do you ever find yourself second-guessing your ability or your knowledge or your confidence in actually being able to share something? Our ability to persuade and to change situations, to change minds, or, I mean, the hardest thing of all, to change hearts. We get nowhere just by looking introspectively. We get nowhere by looking to our own strengths and abilities. And there's a deep sense through what you see in the book of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy that that's exactly what he's doing. It's almost like you could say he's seeing things in 2D. He only sees the problems in the church and the inadequacies in himself. That's the two-dimensional perspective he's got. And what has that resulted in? Well, he's just frozen in ministry. He's not doing the things that Paul, in the first letter, has encouraged him to do. But Paul, in this letter, in 2 Timothy, is writing to him to help him start to see in 3D. To understand that, yes, you can have problems. Yes, you can understand your inadequacies and be well and truly aware of them. But the third thing that we must see in this work of disciple making is to see that God gives us strength to do the things he asks us to do, even to endure suffering. Verse 1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And there's that word again. And there's that source of strength for us again, grace. We're dependent on that grace for salvation Chapter 1, verse 9 told us about it. God saved us, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. But here we see it's not only for salvation that we're dependent on God's grace, but for service too. Not just for salvation, but for the things that we do for God in response to it. So I think the first thing that Paul says when he's starting to get practical about how do we build this courage? How can we, how can we build up this resolve to join with you, Paul, in suffering for this gospel? How do we do this guarding of the deposit that you've been talking about in chapter 1? Well, first look to God for power to press on. Now think about it practically. What does that actually look like for us? How do we look to God for grace? 
How, by what means, you could ask, is God's grace dispensed to us? Well, there are plenty of ways that are very obvious in the Bible. Through his word, to begin with. Uh, Through prayer, through which we can ask him for strength. We can act knowing that God is true to his word and exercise our faith, knowing that he supplies the strength we need even if we're weak. We can use the means of grace that is known as the local church family. So make it our ambition as a church family to turn each other's gaze to Jesus Christ all the time and remind each other. God counters the inadequacies that we experience in ourselves with the adequacy of his own grace all the time. So if someone over here is forgetting that, it's our responsibility as members to encourage them to remember that. Turn their gaze to Jesus and let them see in 3D. Let them see what's really true. Doing so, remembering that God gives kind gifts, even to those who don't deserve it, puts real strength in our disciple making. And to begin with, helps to prepare us for suffering. That's the first thing in verse 1. The second thing, as we look at verse 2, is that you look for people who'll pass it on. So courage isn't just found in enduring hardship, but enlisting others in it too. It's really easy in church leadership to spend uh, all your time fighting fires. There are often fires to fight. And uh, Timothy certainly had plenty of those. There were plenty of things going wrong in the church in Ephesus. But as well as tackling those things, Paul has a different plan for Timothy. It's like he's just saying to him, look, yes, you're going to deal with these different things, but don't forget to get on with the primary work of multiplying gospel workers. It is so key and so crucial and so fundamental to the DNA of being a disciple maker and a gospel worker that Paul's saying, You're being distracted by all these different things. Don't forget this. Enlist others in it. And we thought about a lot about what that looks like in our Elements of Disciple Making series uh, prior to this one. So he says, get on with this primary work of multiplying gospel workers. You see it in verse 2. The things you heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, The training and equipping of men and women for all kinds of gospel work is something that we do as a church and what should want to do more. But I want us to see in this part, I believe Paul isn't talking primarily about general ministry here. I believe he is talking about pastoral leadership and eldership. The kind of teaching ministry that Paul and Timothy themselves are involved in. Which means that the kind of people Timothy is looking for are to be men. Now some people don't like that idea and some disagree with it. Uh, We as a church family don't. We happily ascribe to the biblical view of God's design for men and women as being same but different. Same in humanity, dignity, worth before God. But uh, different only in the subsection of small and certain roles and responsibilities as per God's good design, including the role of pastor or elder. And that's the very role that Paul has in mind here. And I think we know that because in verse 2, Paul's encouraging Timothy to look for and train up more leaders and does so by highlighting a couple of qualifications. Reliability. And secondly, ability. 
Now, there are no special qualifications required for disciple-making, the kind of disciple-making that we're all called to do as men and women of faith. But since Paul is requiring two things here, I'm confident he's looking for replacements for those leaders who've departed from the truth. We know that that was going on in Ephesus. He's also looking for replacements who will join Timothy in the work and share the load of leadership that he's bearing. We know that that's a need in the church in Ephesus. And that Paul is looking for Timothy to look for pastors who will play their part in this great chain of gospel advancement that, as we see even in this verse, went from Jesus to Paul and from Paul to Timothy and then will go from Timothy to the next guy and from that next guy who will pass it on to the next guy. Look for people to train up to be leaders in this particular way who'll pick up the torch, who'll not be ashamed, and who'll join with those who've gone before them in sharing in the suffering that comes with gospel ministry like this. That's why he says, look for people who are qualified, who tick the reliability and ability boxes. In other words, people who are not only good with their words, but good in their lives, character, and competence together are absolutely crucial for the things that Paul has in mind. So what does that mean for us? I mean, as we look to apply this, how do we help as a church family to look for and enlist others in this work? Well, as a church family, I think that begins by us expecting more of our men. I think it involves us challenging men in our congregation to recognize that God does have a certain design and a certain plan and that there is a tendency within men to be lazy or passive as we see with Adam in the garden. Men are called to understand that God has certain roles and responsibilities for them which involves stepping up in the home discipling and caring for their wives, discipling and caring for their children, stepping up in the church as well for leadership. So, men encourage each other to lead well. Church family, encourage the men to lead well. And if any aren't, challenge them. Encourage them. But there are other ways that we can look to enlist others as well. We can identify gifts and abilities in some people that we see in the small things, in the day-to-day things of local church ministry. How many folks have we seen who've maybe been teaching something or actually just by their, their eldering in the congregation, caring for other members of the church so lovingly that it's very obvious that they have gifts? Why don't we nudge and encourage them towards it? In the book of Titus, it says, if anyone desires the office of overseer, that's just synonymous for pastor, synonymous for elder, synonymous for leadership. If anyone desires that office, he desires an obota. So, men, do you desire it? Like, not, oh, I really want that. But actually, do you know what? My passion in life is to serve Jesus. And if he would have me serve in leadership in a local church, then wonderful. Let's figure out how to get on with that. I'm delighted that we do that in many ways. I'd love us to do it more. 
I'm delighted that we do things like ministry training as well. So we not only help to identify certain gifts in men and women in the life of our church family, we provide opportunities for them to serve. Uh, we have four ministry trainees just now. We'd love to have some more. I don't doubt that God is still at work moving in the hearts of people to consider the kind of ministry we're talking about tonight and other kinds, vocational kinds, like women's ministry, biblical counseling, pastoral ministry, all kinds of ministry. Is it something you've thought about? Could it be that you have a change of career coming up? Could it be that um, you've been trying to put these desires for ministry or the, the commendation and encouragements of others behind you, you've been putting them away, oh, it couldn't possibly be me. Why not explore it? Why not speak to those in eldership already? And what are we to do with those that we identify? Well, just exactly what Paul says. We teach the curriculum. Verse 2, Paul says, the things you heard me say, that's what we've got to pass on. The apostolic word, the true gospel. Teach them what it is and how to teach it, and you'll see the gospel so taking hold of people's lives that they will actually give up their jobs to do this one. That church families will work together to make sure that there is provision for those who resolve to do it full time. You'll find God to be faithful to call more into ministry when you do that too. So that is the second thing. We look for people who will pass it on. That develops courage in our entire church family as we seek to make disciples. The third thing, the third thing in this passage to help us join in suffering for the gospel as courageous disciple makers is to look at the cost of pressing on. And we see this in verses 3 to 7. You look at the cost of pressing on. Courage is found by being prepared for what making disciples involves. There's something wonderfully pastoral about preparing someone for some kind of hardship or some kind of suffering. Uh, you might want to sit down, says the family member who's about to share some upsetting news. At the same time, there's something deeply unnerving about experiencing something that you're totally unprepared for. So I remember, I mean, well, like the first time you get an injection at the dentist. You know, I was in P2 and I fell in my classroom and smashed my front tooth. So I got my first ever injection into the, my gum just above my front tooth there. Sharp scratch, said the dentist. I write, I thought, my goodness. Felt like a seven hot sword being shoved all the way through my nose and into my brain. Now, the point is, I would have braced myself way, way more if he had just been honest with me and said, this is going to hurt a lot, okay? But there's a pastoral thing going on here when Paul is trying to prepare Timothy for the reality of the pain or the suffering that might be experienced. That's what he's doing in verses 3 to 7 being realistic about the work of disciple-making. So the first thing he says in verse 3 is it's not going to be easy. He says again what he said in chapter 1, verse 8, join with me in suffering. Uh, he's pulled no punches here. He's really straight down the line here. He then provides these three illustrations that he invites Timothy and us to chew over. 
from which three jobs from which three important themes emerge soldier, athlete, farmer. Now, the first theme that emerges, I think, is just the reality of hard work. None of these vocations are a walk in the park. Soldiers are thrown into life threatening situations, athletes follow rigorous, painful training and dietary regimes. Farmers get up early, work all day, and collapse in a heap at nighttime. So I think Paul is trying to help Timothy understand this work that he's called to do, whether it's addressing the false teaching in the church, ministering to those members who are tempted to follow that false teaching, or whether it's just the day-to-day -day things of making disciples and training up the trainees. He's saying it's not going to be easy. Making disciples isn't a walk in the park. The second thing he highlights, I think, in these three images is that there is the possibility of failure. Remember, I've said before that as you read between the lines in this letter, it definitely sounds like Timothy is not just timid and shy Timothy. He's actually very well-trained Timothy. It's not like he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. It's that he's seriously afraid and ashamed. He's embarrassed of Paul and by virtue of that embarrassment, ashamed of the gospel because that's why Paul's suffering. And so Paul is being very firm with him at times in this letter to say, you have a choice to make. What are you going to do? Are you going to be ashamed of me like all the rest of the false teachers? Or are you going to endure with the truth and press on? And I think he's doing the same here by highlighting, look, there is the possibility of failure in this. And all three of these illustrations have something of a negative feel to them. So what can, what can soldiers do? They can go AWOL. That's why he's talking about pleasing the commanding officer in here. Uh, athletes can cheat. That's why he's talking about athletes competing according to the rules. Farmers can be lazy. That's why he's emphasizing the necessity of being a hardworking farmer. So if we're unprepared for the possibility of failure and think that we can just coast through disciple-making, I think Paul would say something different. So if we're unprepared for various things, whether it's the assault of the media, computer games and hobbies and other interests, things that actually have no real gain in eternity, distractions can carry us off into uselessness. Or maybe if we're unprepared for the temptation to, that comes commonly to cut corners in our own walk with God. Ah, do you know, I don't need, I haven't read the Bible today, that's all right. Or in the gospel work he's called us to do, maybe by reshaping it, ministry, to make it less demanding for us, then our lack of conscientiousness can carry us off towards disqualification, as it did with the athlete. Or if we're unprepared for the hard work that's involved, laziness can carry us off into unproductiveness. And it's like Paul's saying with these three examples, Timothy, church family, don't let it be you. It's not going to be easy. Be realistic about it. There is the potential of failure. But the third thing that's evident, the third theme that sticks out with each of these is the possibility of reward, great reward. The soldier anticipates a victory. The athlete, a crown. The farmer, 
a harvest. And we can anticipate the same. So if we struggle with a lack of verve and desire to press on in disciple making, if we're finding it hard and finding ourselves discouraged, we can look to God for strength to press on. We can look to enlist others so that we're sharing the load and everybody's at it, encouraging, encouraging each other together. And we can look at the real cost of pressing on, be prepared for it, but understanding that there is great reward in it. Nothing better than it. Timothy, it's going to be hard, but what a way to spend your life. What a way to spend your days telling people about Jesus. Yes, some will reject it and spit in your face, but many will receive it and go on to faith. No better way. Don't tell the treasurer, but I would do this job for nothing. It is an absolute privilege and a joy. More should consider it. But whether you're paid to do it or not to do it, it's all our full-time job. You think you're a policeman? A fireman? A teacher? A student? You're not. First of all, you're a disciple maker. And there is great ward in pressing on in this hard work. Fourth thing, you look at the gospel itself. You look at the gospel itself to enthuse your pressing on. And this is what we see in verses 8 to 10. How often do we find ourselves so narrow-mindedly amnesic, forgetful of what life is all about, forgetting the big picture of what God is doing in our worlds. How often have we found that the most important things, the God things, get lost in the everyday pressures of life? Well, courage is found and focus is found by looking into the gospel itself, and that's what we see in verses 8 to 10. Starting with the subject of the gospel, Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, Paul says, verse 8, raised from the dead, descended from David, this is my gospel. So he wants us to think about Jesus here, and two things in particular. He's alive, and he's going to reign forever. That's why he says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. Now the promise from 2 Samuel 7 is that David would have a, king, a descendant on his throne, and his reign would be an everlasting kingdom. He would be undefeated, this king. Undefeatable, this king. And as he trampled the greatest of enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and rose from the dead victorious, Jesus proved it to us all. This is Paul's gospel. This is Paul's confidence this is the thing that helps Paul endure. Does it help you? Jesus was dead. He suffered horribly at the hands of wicked people, but he, for the joy set before him, endured this cross, scorned at shame, sat down at the right hand of the Father, job done, sins paid for, people redeemed, grace extended, 
that you who hear and believe the gospel can come to him and find salvation? Is that you? Have you come to him for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God? There is no other way. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, I'd love you to talk to the person who brought you or if you just come along tonight on your own, I'd love to chat to you about that afterwards. I'll be sitting down here at the front. I've even got a little New Testament that I would love to give you with a wee note in it for where you should start reading. That would be our gift to you. This is the greatest thing ever you've ever heard. Come and talk to us about it. What news this is. But not only that, what a model to all who follow by making disciples in his name. We look at the gospel to enthuse our pressing on because when we look at Jesus, we see who one who did endure, who did suffer, but is now victorious, suffering first, glory later. Isn't that what we've been promised to? Why do we think it's going to be glory now and glory later as well at times? Suffering first, hardship now. And when we get there, when the glory comes, we're going to look back, strange as it may seem to us just now as we go through hard times, light, momentary, are the words that we'll use to describe some of the things we found moved us to tears and made us feel like giving up. Light. Momentary. compared to that glory. <laughs> the second thing that puts real oomph in our disciple making as we look at the gospel is it's spread. <laughs> the fact that the spread of this gospel is unhindered. It's like Paul says, think about me and how God is at work in my hardships, Timothy. Now, we know that Paul at this time of writing is in prison. He's awaiting execution. We know that this is the last letter that we have from him. And having pointed to Jesus and said, this is my gospel, he says, verse 9, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Paul's like, I've done nothing wrong. I've done only what's right in God's eyes, but I'm chained. But, he says, God's word is not chained. And here we understand that everything throws itself in the way of this gospel and its carriers like us. Everything from false accusations to imprisonments threaten to hinder the spread of this gospel. And it can't have been easy for Paul in his experiences. Man, he suffered. Indeed, this letter contains just so many poignant notes that show that it took its toll on him. But look at the resolve and the resilience in this statement. But God's word is not chained. That's Paul's confidence. He's like, how ridiculous. I can imagine him lifting up these chains, shaking the ones on his leg. How futile. They think this is going to stop the spread of the gospel? It's not. Because it's on an unstoppable journey to the ends of the earth. And even that reality enthuses our disciple making. And gives us the strength to endure in telling others about Jesus. But if the gospel is unhindered in its journey. 
we can truly be undaunted in transporting it. The third thing he highlights in this little section is the effect of the gospel. What is it actually achieving? This glorious news about Jesus who's alive and will reign forever as it spreads to the ends of the earth. What is it effecting? Salvation. People are actually being saved from their sins, from hell, from God's wrath, when they hear and respond to this gospel. That's why we press on despite the hardships we experience. That's why it's worth it. That's why Paul pressed on. Verse 10, look with me. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now the word elect means God's people, God's chosen people, the people Jesus spoke about in John 10. And the certainty of the fact that people will respond is the thing that Paul says here drives his disciple making. It gives him confidence. It's no futile effort. It's the means of God bringing his people home. So endure everything, Timothy, because when you do this gospel work, you'll find yourself to be the instrument of God's salvation. And there's nothing greater than that. So again, how do we do this? How do we look to the gospel to enthuse our pressing on? Well, we've got to hear it preached. Preach it to yourself every day. Make hearing it preached every Sunday your priority. Remind each other of God's grace to us and the beauty of this gospel. You're saved not through anything you have done, but all through what Jesus has done. It's by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, as it says in Ephesians 2. Remind each other of these phenomenal truths. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Preach this stuff to yourself every single day. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Say that to people who are feeling laden down by their guilt. What guilt? Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, says the Lord. Incredible truths. Remind each other of these deep, deep, meaningful truths and apply them to each other's lives. Share communion together. Take bread and wine. Encourage each other and prod each other on in our faith. Remind each other of God's great plan, drawn up in eternity past, worked out in the present, to be established in the future forever and ever and ever. What a great set of encouragements to help us press on and endure in ministry. How do we do it? How, are we, how do we build up courage to be the disciple makers that God would have us be? We look to God for strength, for power to press on, by looking to for others to join and pass it on, by looking realistically at the cost of passing it on and so preparing ourselves for suffering, and by looking at the gospel to enthuse our pressing on. So what will we do? There's a choice that's offered at the end of this passage, and it's a hard choice. We see it in verses 11 to 13, these two kind of epigrams, two pairs 
of statements. And the choice is very simple. You can choose either to, um, to reign with him or be disowned by him. You can choose to endure what's going on and press on in your faith and in your association with the apostolic witness of the Bible and especially to associate with the name and the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Or if you choose not to do that and so disown him, you can be disowned. Now, verses 11 to 13 contain these two pairs of two if-we statements. The first pair relates to those who remain true and courageously endure. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him, Paul says. Now, the death in view in verse 11 isn't actual death. It's death to self. Like when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's a kind of Roman 6 death that's been viewed. And those who die to themselves will live with him. And if we do that enduringly to the end, the promise is we will live with him. We've just heard, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David, the one who will live forever. You're going to live together with him. No, no, not just live together with him, reign with him. You as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. Oh my goodness. The reality of that. Like it's enough Lord just to be saved by you. But to be a co-heir with Christ. You start to see why we put the word amazing in front of grace all the time. I'm astounded by that. I did not deserve that. We will live with him if we endure. The second pair, though, relates to those who turn away and are unfaithful, like the false teachers in Ephesus, and those who are turning their itchy ears towards them. If we disown him, verse 12 says, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. To turn to a false gospel is to disown Jesus and demonstrate a lack of faith. The prospect for that person, according to this passage, I think is terrible. They'll find Jesus to be faithful to himself and true to his own words, i.e. to his own nature and standards. To change those who would be happy to change who he is but he won't, he won't do that and he can't disown himself. He can't be untrue to his own character and to his own promises of salvation for those who believe and persevere and judgment for those who don't believe. He will stay true to his promises, whether that's salvation or judgment. Both are real and according to God's word, both bring him glory. He's entirely right and justified in both. So it's a big F, isn't it? It's a big choice. 
negatively, there's this, it serves as a sobering reminder that the Lord will judge those who reject the gospel and who disown him. And by disowning him, prove that they were never really of the gospel. As 1 John 2.19 says, For if they were really of us, they would not have gone out from us. For by going out from us, they proved they were never really of us. But positively for us, in a church family full of evidence of grace, of endurance, I think this passage encourages us, reminding us that actually there is a great future in store for us as we press on to hear your conversations about how we care deeply as a church family about reaching out to the lost around us, to hear you speak passionately and so deeply for those whose souls you care about a lot. What an encouragement that is to each other. And what an encouragement that there is a future to press on for. So how exactly do we do that? By looking to God for power to press on. By looking for others to join in passing it on. By looking realistically at the cost of passing it on. And by looking at the gospel to enthuse our pressing on. We're going to take some time to respond in quietness. There's a few things on screen. Maybe if your struggle has been, you know, I am actually embarrassed about the Bible or about speaking up for Jesus, then maybe you could turn to Ephesians 2 or Romans 5. Remember God's grace towards you. If the strength that God provides is something you'd like to mull over a bit more, you could read 2 Peter 1, see some of the promises there, turn that into a prayer. If gospel ministry or church leadership is something you're inclined to consider, why don't you turn to Titus 2, use it to help you pray. Uh, maybe you want to use the sermon guide itself to pray through the four points and ask God to help you apply it. If you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, think over what's been said. What do you agree with? Uh, what would you like to find out more about? Is there a question you would like to ask later? Use these next couple of minutes to think about that. Uh, let's go into prayer now, and uh, Claire is going to